Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I want to offer a special welcome to those who are watching the service out on the back, out in the cold and wet. You guys uh, get a badge for bravery and for hardiness. Uh, I saw some of you gathering out there, so it's great uh, that all of us can join together in this time. I encourage you and invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians. We continue our study of Galatians with chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. Galatians 2, 17 through 21. Now, to the background, as we come to these verses, the book of Galatians was written to a group of churches within the geographic region of, you guessed it, Galatia which is in the central southern part of, of Asia Minor. That is the kind of southern middle part of modern-day Turkey. And Paul and Barnabas, along with a few other evangelists, had planted churches in this region just a few years prior. But recently, a group of false teachers had begun infiltrating these churches and teaching a distorted version of the gospel. You see, they were teaching a version of Christianity which denied the power of Christ alone to bring complete salvation. Christ was important, they may have agreed, but he was not all that was needed to live a life that was pleasing to God. They would argue if you were to truly be accepted into God's family, you needed to add the law to the gospel. And this letter is aimed towards correcting this false teaching. For to add anything to the gospel is not merely to distort the gospel, but it is to destroy the gospel. In particular, in verses 17 through 21, we have explained how one is to live a life that is pleasing and acceptable to God, not according to the law, but rather according to faith in Jesus Christ. So hear now the word of the Lord. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Through the law, I die to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father God, as we come now to your word, we pray that you would guide us by your word and spirit so that in your light we may see light. And in your truth, we might find freedom and in your will, discover your peace through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. 
This past week, I was listening to a financial self-help radio call-in show. You might be able to guess which one that is. And a young lady in her mid-twenties called up and she started to explain her situation. She began by saying, I make about $60,000 a year, but it's in a job that I hate. And despite the fact that I don't have any major financial responsibilities, I find myself constantly seeking payday loans to pay for my lifestyle. You see, I spend all my money on marijuana and delivery food services like Grubhub. And I want to know how I can stop. It's a sad situation. A young woman using all of her resources to indulge in drugs and take out food. And I wonder... What would you have told this young lady to do? What would your advice have been? How could she change her life from a meaningless mess of self-indulgence to a life directed towards fruitfulness and meaning? Now, the easy answer is stop. Right? Stop doing that. Stop acting like this. Stop taking drugs. Stop ordering takeout food. Stop binge watching Netflix all weekend long. You make $60,000 and you're single. You should be financially secure if you follow the rules. But you know, don't you, that the rules are not what she needed. You know this because you most likely have sought to help someone with similar addictions and your advice has failed. Or even more likely, you know this because you have sought to change your own life for the better. And you have not succeeded. You knew all the right things to do, but you did not have the will or the power to do them. So then how might we be freed from the effects of sin and live in a manner that is fruitful and meaningful? How might we break the cycle of self-destructive behaviors and live for God's glory? In verse 19 of our text, Paul describes this life of meaning and fruitfulness as living to God. Look there. Look down at verse 19. You'll see that there's a, it begins, um, or, or the, this phrase at the end of verse 19 says, So that... Right. This is the purpose of what he's talking about. This is the end result so that I might live to God. That is the end result that Paul is looking for and that we want in our own lives to live to God. As Christians, we know that the aim of our life is to live to the glory of God. This truth is so foundational That the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins by explaining that the chief end of man is to glorify God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is the end. That is the purpose. But how do we do that? What is the power that we have to live for the glory of God? For we are all naturally inclined not to live for the glory of God. We are a broken mess who wants to sit on the couch and smoke weed and stuff our faces with whoppers and binge watch Homeland. Right? We want some version of that to indulge the desires of the flesh. For we all fall short of the glory of God. 
And here's the main point of Paul's dispute with the Judaizers. For those who were coming in and preaching this false gospel, they would agree that man is to live to God. They would agree that we are sinners who need to be transformed. But the point of divergence is how to live for the glory of God. The preachers of this false gospel were insisting that the means to transformation was abiding by the law of God. That's the way that we change, they would argue. The way that we live meaningful and fruitful lives, the way that we live for the glory of God is by obeying the rules that God has given us. And that seems to make sense. God's law is good. God's law, as we'll see later, Paul says, is spiritual. It is good. And we think that if we obey it, we will find life. Nevertheless, sin has trapped us in our brokenness. Sin has trapped us so that even though we know what we are supposed to do, we are unable to do it. Listen to Paul as he explains this truth in Romans chapter 7. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, right? When he says it's spiritual, he means that that the law was inspired by the Spirit of God. It is good. It's an expression of God's heart for human behavior. We know that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You see, the power of sin over our flesh is so great that when the truth of the law is revealed to our flesh, it does not produce righteousness, it produces sin. Anyone who has children knows that when you give them a rule, it will bring out a desire to break that rule. If you say to your child, please don't go play in the road, it's a natural reaction for them to go, huh, I've never thought about playing in the road. That seems like a good idea. Why can't I go play in the road? Why are you keeping me from the road? Why are you withholding the road from me? And Paul says that his own flesh did not know what it meant to mean to covet until he heard the commandment not to covet. And then covetousness came forth from him. You see, sin turns what is good. The law is good, right? It's good not to play in the road. But then the law, when it comes in, awakens within us a desire to break the law. So then how do we live for the glory of God? How can we live lives that are fruitful and meaningful? Well, what we will see in our text is that to live to God We must die with Christ. Now what do I mean when I say that if we are to live, we must die? Seems a strange way of thinking about things, but it is exactly what has been taught to us throughout the New Testament. For Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, if anyone would come after me, right? If you're going to follow Christ, if you're going to live to God, what do we do? Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That is, if we want to live, we must die. Now, in verses 17 through 19, Paul is making this argument. He is saying that if you are to live to God, you must die to the law. Look down at those verses. Now, I will warn you, there seems there these verses are put in a way that seems confusing to us. And so hopefully as we go through, they'll make more sense. But listen to him now. And then as we go through, they'll make more sense. He says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Now, the first way that we die to the law is that we must put aside the law as a means of being justified. That is of being accepted by God as righteous. We covered that last week. Verse 17 draws on verse 16, right? Our belief is that we are accepted by God, not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. No one will be justified through works of the law. To live to God, to live for His glory, we must begin with the foundational truth that we are accepted, that we are forgiven of our sin because Christ has cleansed us by His blood and He has opened up eternity by His resurrection life. And if we are to put aside the law in favor of faith in Jesus Christ, then we must pursue justification through Christ alone. Paul and Peter And every Jew in doing this is admitting that they too are sinners. They are found to be sinners, right? In our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Peter, Paul, and every Jew is admitting that the law has not made them righteous before God. They are sinners just like the Gentiles are. By placing their faith in Christ, they are announcing to the whole world that the law cannot save Jew nor Gentile. And therefore, Christ is not a servant of sin. He is not increasing sin. His gospel, rather, is revealing the reality of sin in all people. And therefore, we must die to the law by seeking acceptance with God through faith in Christ alone. And not by works of the law. The second way we die to the law is through never returning to the law as a means of acceptance. When Paul says, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What he is what he means is, is that if he returns to the law as a means of salvation, then he's undermining his faith in Jesus Christ. Right. If he's turning back to the very thing that he rejected, if he rebuilds a case for righteousness based upon the law after he's already turned away from it, then he will be seen as a transgressor. You see, if we are going to die to the law, we cannot keep it in reserve as a means to be accepted by God. If we are pursuing justification, if we are pursuing to be accepted by God through faith, we cannot keep works in reserve. We can't say, you know, I'm going to I'm going to follow Jesus, but I'm also going to keep this reserve, this bank of good works that I can lean on, because if it comes down to it. Maybe I'm not going to be accepted by Christ. Maybe I do need all of these works here on the side. And when you do that, 
What you are doing is you are rebuilding what was torn down in Christ. You are building up a case for your righteousness when it's only in Christ that you are found righteous. And Peter, we know from this situation, at least by his actions, went back to the law. When pressure came upon him, he rejected eating with the Gentiles and began only eating with the Jews. And Paul calls him on this. Don't rebuild what has been torn down. To die to the law, you cannot have it in reserve. And the third way you die to the law is through the law. But what does this mean? What does Paul mean when he says that through the law he died to the law? Well, it means that the law itself is an agent of death. While it does reveal God's heart, it also reveals man's sin. It awakens and enlivens the sin of our flesh. And therefore, we must die to the law by seeing that the law is actually killing us. We must read the Ten Commandments and see that we fall woefully short. We must see that the truth of the law will be the agent of our condemnation because it witnesses to our sin. The law is good. The law is true. The law is spiritual. But we are broken. We are sinful. We are guilty. And therefore the law serves to condemn us. And I say to you, Christian, let it condemn you. Let it condemn you. Let it kill you. Because in killing you, it drives you to Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. We must die to the law through the law. You must go to the law and say, I cannot keep this. There is no life in this letter. I must go to the Spirit of Christ alone. You see, you die to the law by allowing the law to kill you. That is, by seeing the truth that the law is condemnation for lawbreakers. And since we are all lawbreakers, we will be killed by it. How do you live to God? You must begin by dying to the law. Now, as we move on to verse 20, Paul goes further with this concept of dying to the law. And here we see that the next thing that every Christian must do to live to God, to his honor and glory, is that we must die with Christ. Look at the first half of verse 20. There it says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, this is an interesting statement, isn't it? What does Paul mean? We know that Paul hasn't been crucified. We know that he isn't dead. He's writing this letter. What does he mean when he says, I have been crucified with Christ? Well, to understand what Paul says here, we must have a broader understanding of Paul's concept of what we call union with Christ. Throughout his letters, Paul continually presents a spiritual reality that we call union with Christ. And what this means is that believers who have been joined to Christ in such a way that all of Christ becomes all of ours. Everything that Christ has done, everything that he has endured, everything that he has earned becomes the possession of the believer. And it becomes the foundational reality 
of our spiritual standing before God. You see, when a couple gets married, they're joined in the union of marriage. And this relationship means that the husband and the wife join their lives in such a way that nothing is mine any longer, but everything is ours. This union is expressed well in finances. Young ladies, you may have worked hard not to have any debt through college, but if you marry a young man with student loans, his debt become your debt and your assets become his assets. You join together. Everything that is yours is his. Everything that is his is yours. Now, Paul explains, building on this idea of union, that the church is the bride of Christ. And that through faith, we are joined to Christ in such a way that all of his spiritual wealth becomes ours and all of our spiritual debt becomes his. We are joined so that our spiritual account is assessed according to Christ's accomplishments. And therefore, everything that Christ has accomplished, we have the right to claim as our own. We have the rights of the sons of God. We can come to God based on the fact not that we are sinless, but that Christ is sinless and that he took on our sin and that by his blood, our sin has been washed clean. Listen to the way this is explained in the book of Ephesians. Paul says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, right, we are spiritually dead. God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our union with Christ means we have been crucified with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. We have ascended with Christ. And even now we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ has been so joined to him that they have died. And whether you know it or not, Christian, you have been crucified with Christ. For Christ took you upon himself. He married you. And then he paid all your debt by his infinitely valuable blood. And this is how we live to God. We die with Christ. For through dying with Christ, we die to works of sin and darkness. The chains that bind us to sin are no longer our reality. They have been broken and the debt has been paid and we are now free reigning with Christ. Do you want to live to God? Do you want to live a life that is fruitful and meaningful? Then you must turn to Jesus Christ in faith and you must die. You must be crucified with him. And this means facing the full weight and reality of your sin. It means looking at the depths of your guilt and coming to terms with the reality that the just punishment for your sin is crucifixion. And in faith, believing that that judgment has been executed in Christ. Until you're willing to face this reality, you will know nothing of living to God. You'll only be living to self. Caught in the never-ending cycle of failed self-help schemes. You must die to the law. And you must die to self. To live to God, we must be crucified with Christ. 
You see, our union with Christ means that we have been crucified with Christ. But we have not been crucified for the sake of death, but for the sake of life. The desire we are pursuing is life, a life that is worth living, a life that is aimed towards the highest good. And we see that we must die, but we die so that we might truly live in Christ Jesus. Look at how Paul explains this in the rest of verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, just as union with Christ means that we have died with Christ, it also means that Christ now lives in us. When Paul says that Christ lives in me, he's referring to the reality that the Spirit of Christ, that is the Holy Spirit himself, who is the bond of our union with Christ, now lives within every believer. The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, is the possession of every true believer. And as you believe in Christ, the Spirit binds you to Christ. Okay? It is what brings us in union and in fellowship with Christ is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. And it is the power of the life that we are now called to live. This is how we live a life that is to God and His glory. Not by the letter of the law but by the power of the Spirit within. We don't have the power on our own to live for the glory of God. We'll continue to return to the law and to our sin. We'll try to rebuild what has been torn down if we try to live by the law. But if we live by the power of the Spirit, we will live to God's glory alone. This is what Paul means when he refers to his life in the flesh. You see, while the spiritual reality is that we have died and we have been raised with Christ, that we are seated with him in the heavenly places, the physical reality remains that we are still living in sinful, broken flesh. Christians, though free from the condemning power of sin, continue to have to fight the lingering effects of sin. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you don't struggle to live for God's glory. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you should expect that you'll be able to live a sinless existence from here on out. We continue to fail. We continue to struggle. But we fight not by the law, but by the life of the Spirit. And we live by the power of the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, verse 20. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is how you live to the glory of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to look to the love of Christ and offering up himself on your behalf. To live to God. The false preachers in Galatia would not have objected to this goal. They would have surely agreed that the highest aim of human life is to live to the glory of God. Paul's argument was not ultimately about the ends, it was about the means. Not about living for God's glory, but how do we live for God's glory? As Christians, we too know that the most fruitful and meaningful life is one that is lived to God. But how do we do this? It's our tendency to make rules and laws for ourselves and others. 
We want to return to the power of the flesh. But we cannot begin with Christ and then seek to live without Him. This is Paul's conclusion. If you look just a few verses down, we'll cover these next week. In verse 3 of chapter 3, Paul says, Having begun by the Spirit, right, you are justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Your new life has been given to you by the Spirit. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? When we hear stories like this sad young lady, we begin to want the law. We want five steps to freedom. We want seven rules for life. With our children, we want to give them the law to make them behave. With our neighbors, we want the HOA to control their behaviors. With our fellow citizens, we want legislation to control their sinful actions. But we need to hear this. It is not the law that will reign in our sin. We cannot pursue a life that is glorifying and honoring to God and our families by controlling our children's outward actions only. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our community will not be transformed if we enact the proper legislation to get people in line. What our country needs, what our community needs is not more laws. It needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. To change their hearts. But we continually want to go back to the law. We continually want to reign in sin by the law. To control our country. To control our family. To control ourselves. But that is fruitless. If we truly want to see transformation in our own hearts, in our families, in our community, it comes by the power of the Spirit of God. Now rules can be helpful. Laws can bring order, but it is not until there is a change of heart that lives change. And it's not until we are crucified and raised with Christ that we can live to the glory and honor of God. So what do we do when our friends or our children or even our very selves are battling with sin? Do you give them the law? Or do you give them Christ? For we look to Christ in faith. And by the power of the Spirit, we believe that we have truly been crucified with Christ. And it is now Him who lives in us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come to you now in this time. And we pray, O God, that you would give to us the grace that we might walk according to the power of the Spirit. And we pray, O God, if there is anyone here this morning or anyone who is listening to this through our live stream that does not know you, that this whole concept of living by the power of the Spirit seems foreign to them. We pray, O God, that You would open up their eyes, that You would apply to them the truth of the Gospel according to the power of Your Spirit. And we pray, O God, that You would bring a great reformation in our families, in our community, our nation, through the power of the Gospel to change our hearts, to crucify us with Christ, that we might reign with Him now and forevermore. We pray it in Your holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen.